0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to Litigation Radio. I'm your host, Dave Scriven-Young. I'm a commercial and environmental litigator in the Chicago office of and Abramson, which is recognized as the largest law firm serving the construction industry with 115 lawyers and 11 offices around the US. On this show, we talk to the country's top litigators and judges to discover best practices in developing our careers, winning cases, getting more clients, and building a sustainable practice. This podcast is brought to you by the Litigation Section of the American Bar Association. The Litigation Section provides litigators of all practice areas the resources we need to be successful advocates for our clients. Learn more at ambar.org slash litigation. Litigators face distinct business development challenges. You don't know when someone will require your services. Many litigation matters are one-shot deals where a good client may never need the litigator's services ever again. On top of that, much of the business development advice out there is contradictory or overemphasizes content marketing, which may result in limited results even after a mountain of articles and blog posts are written. So is it true that you can't market litigation? Well, my guest on today's show will help dispel that myth and provide us with a roadmap that will allow us to get more clients and in the process, advance our careers. So I'm pleased to introduce our guest for today's episode. Charlotte Frost has been a trial lawyer for more than 30 years. Her professional accomplishments include being recognized by Chambers Partners for her trial skills, being recognized by Best Lawyers as the 2018 Houston Lawyer of the Year for Products Liability Litigation, and being recognized as a Texas Super Lawyer every year from 2005 to 2020. She also served as the President of Litigation Council of America and has other honors as well. She has also been active in the National Association of Women Lawyers, including repeat service on the Supreme Court Nominee Evaluation Committee. She's also been very active in women's committees for the American Bar Association as well. And finally, she is the author of the book, Power at the Table, The Law Firm Marketing Maverick Teaches How to Develop Your Own Book of Business. Charlotte, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you very much for having me today.
0: We also have Dr. Angela Meyer on the show. She's a business development coach and strategic marketing advisor at Meyer Vorst Consultants based in Dallas. Angela brings more than 25 years of experience marketing to in-house and outside litigation counsel, both as an expert witness and head of business development for a large engineering litigation support firm. She was president and CEO of the Product Liability Advisory Council and is an active member of the section of litigation. We're so glad to have you on the show today, Angela.
2: Thanks, Dave. I'm looking forward to the conversation.
0: Well, let's jump into it. And Charlotte, uh, your book, Power at the Table, shares your journey of starting a firm with a partner. And actually, you describe this uh, process as jumping off the precipice because you had no clients of your own, knew little about how to run a firm. So tell us a little bit about your journey.
1: Well, I began my marketing and business development efforts very early on. I started at one of the large blue-stocking law firms and wasn't really expected to have clients. That wasn't part of the the protocol, but I was fortunate to have an in-house female lawyer as a client on one of my assigned books of business, and she strongly encouraged me to start looking at the practice of law from a business perspective and to begin the process of developing clients of my own, because that is how, one, survives and thrives in the law business. That process began with some of the the usual things, joining groups, doing some writing, introducing myself. And I was fortunate to be taken along on some client pitch meetings fairly early on. I wasn't a substantive participant in those, but I was able to learn the ropes. So that was sort of the beginning of the process. And it became clear to me fairly early on that it was necessary to have my own clients if I was going to have any sort of control over my career.
0: And then what happened that made you start investigating starting your own firm with a partner?
1: The partner that I worked with at a small boutique litigation firm came to me and asked if I would be interested in going with him and becoming a 50-50 partner in what was really his practice. And so I thought that was a terrific opportunity and took, took advantage of it. we started the firm, and I quickly learned that my English degree background didn't really prepare me for running a business. So I began the process of studying and learning how one actually runs a business, which was important on the business side and is something that I frankly recommend for all lawyers, including the litigators. And as an outgrowth of that, I began the process of identifying those kinds of clients I thought I would like to do work for, and figuring out ways to get introductions and make progress towards being considered for the work that they had and for those tasks that they needed someone to handle.
0: Well, that's great. And we'll get into the specifics on on those tips. Uh, But let's turn to Angela. Can you tell us a little bit about your business development journey?
2: Sure. Thanks, Dave. Well, much like lawyers, engineers are not trained to be salespeople. I actually still don't even relish the word sales. I prefer to say that I serve customers' needs. I began my professional journey in this litigation support firm as an action reconstructionist and expert witness. I really didn't know anything about getting clients or developing relationships. I just knew I could do good engineering. So I ended up managing a number of client projects and thus had interaction with associates and law firms that were supporting the senior trial counsel. But I didn't at the time consider that anything that I did had anything to do with business development. So through a twist of fate, I ended up supporting the CEO of the company who thought it'd be a really great idea to have a PhD engineer answer cold calls from attorneys looking for experts. And I said to him, what does a PhD know about marketing? And he said, you have a PhD, you can do anything. And that turned into a full-time job doing marketing and business development for the rest of my career. It really wasn't something I planned. I mostly learned by doing and making mistakes along the way. And over time, I built a strong resume of making connections between scientists and engineers and their litigation counsel, doing research on potential clients, and just keeping in touch with clients and other litigators that I met. And they came to me when they needed advice or support. So I became a trusted advisor to the community, of which I'm really, really proud.
0: Excellent. And so let's talk specifically about uh, litigators and business development. Charlotte, you've been a litigator your entire career. Are there any special business development issues that affect litigators that may not affect other lawyers? And how do we overcome those uh, specific issues? One of
1: the Particular issues that I think affects litigators in a way that it doesn't necessarily affect other lawyers is the change in litigation environment. There are phases of litigation. Sometimes it's a medical malpractice-rich environment. Sometimes it's a mass tort-rich environment. It's currently a pharmaceutical products liability-rich environment. One needs to be flexible enough to adapt to those changes in the legislative and statutory situation that does not seem to affect other kinds of lawyers in quite the same way. So one needs to not only be adept at developing business, but they need to be adept at identifying changes in the market that may affect their type of client and the type of work that they are going to provide to the clients. That is, in my view, somewhat different from what you see in other situations. The other is something that you identified in the introduction, and that is that oftentimes a client really only needs a litigator maybe once. And when I meet with clients, I explain to them that while it is routine for me to be in litigation, if they're lucky, this is the one and only time they will ever have a litigation issue. That means that the process of developing business for a litigator really is an ongoing process. One never knows when the litigation is going to completely go away. So you need a different kind of litigation that you're working on. And you never know whether that one fabulous case is going to resolve and that particular client, no matter how much they like you, is never going to need you again. So it is important that you have a broader focus in your business efforts. I don't think that a litigator can silo their efforts in the way that others may be able to do. It is a a more ongoing process, and that is a challenge that's just inherent in the process of litigation.
0: And it seems to me as well, just based on my own experience, time is a big factor as well. It's hard to constantly do business development when you're sort of in the midst of discovery or in the midst of trial. But then, as you said, um, Charlie, you can't really have A client who, you know, may only give you one litigation matter to work on, um, you can't really rely on that client to provide additional matters necessarily. So time is definitely a factor for everyone to deal with. And um, Sharla, how how do you deal with sort of the need to constantly market um, as opposed to, you know, dealing with a busy trial docket?
1: I think that is a very insightful observation and it is correct one. But the truth is you simply have to find a way to make time to do that. The process of developing clients is similar to what Angela described on her business clients. You you want to focus on building relationships and being available to provide service and to provide value to those people who reach out to you. I went through training that was called the Women's Roundtable Rainmakers Group, and it was designed to help women lawyers in specific learn how to do business development and marketing. And one of the things we were taught in that training was to carve out time at the beginning of every day to do something that was business or marketing related. It could be as simple as dropping a handwritten note to an old client. It could be providing an update on some uh, change in litigation. But those sorts of things need to become part of your everyday routine. Otherwise, they do get swept aside. You're in trial. It's hard to keep up. Uh, you're working on discovery. It's hard to build it in. But I find that if you have it on the calendar and it is a priority, it, it gets done. I always say that as lawyers, if it isn't on the calendar, it doesn't exist. So it's important as a litigator to make sure that amongst all of your other assignments, you have on your daily calendar the obligation to do something that's business related. It doesn't have to be big, but it does need to be continuous.
0: And Angela, I'm sure you know, time is a factor as well, especially for expert witnesses who are pre- preparing for trial, preparing for depositions. Um, how, do, how do you go about uh, sort of factoring in business development into uh, when I'm sure is a, a busy practice as well?
2: I totally agree with what Charla says. You have to build it into your calendar. I'm one of these people that works off a list or having it now as I'm older on my outlook um, to do it. And I teach the people that I work with about the same thing. It could be five minutes a day. It could be five minutes a week, depending upon what's going on. But you have to do something. A really good friend of mine used a system where he had three Note cards on his desk, one green, one red, one yellow. And so what he would do is the highest priority business development thing was in red. The lowest priority was in green. He put them on his desk. And by Friday, he had to have those three things done. He'd tear up the cards and he'd start three new ones for the next week. And he became a very successful litigator, business manager, and and head of of a major law firm, a regional office because of it. Um, because he recognized the fact that the value has to be there and you have to continually not only be great at what you do from a profession, you also have to build the relationship.
0: And Angela, you know, when I go to these presentations uh, by business development experts or your, you know, bar association CLEs, I hear a lot about content marketing, you know, writing and speaking It's sort of the silver bullet that's going to bring in clients. So I'm interested in your perspective on, uh, you know, what the role of content marketing should be in a business development plan and specifically, can we solely rely on content marketing to build a reliable client base?
2: Sure. Well, to me, there's two very important things in what we consider marketing yourself. Your personal branding and your business development. And content marketing is an excellent way to help in your brand development, your knowledge and your reputation for a particular subject. The one thing I will say in content marketing, you've got to be good at, I took a class very early on, much like um, Charlotte said about the roundtable group that she went to to get some training. I went and took a uh, speaking class I thought I was a pretty good speaker until I'd gotten myself videotaped and saw the problems that I had with my speaking, and I worked on those. So if you're going to go that way in terms of your content marketing, make sure that you are good at it. Same with writing. Make sure you hone your writing skills as well. And I know lawyers are typically great writers, so I don't worry about that. But this is a way to build your brand, your knowledge, and your reputation in a particular area. It's also the best way to be seen, and I say that in quotes, on either a local, regional, or national platform. You know, people are always talking about building a network. Content marketing is the start of that. But I don't believe, unless you became an expert in a very particular area, that content marketing is this magical tool to attract clients. You have to build relationships. You have to have a network in order to get business because people have to know you and trust you to hire you.
0: Well, let's talk about building that network and specifically... Uh, bringing in clients, and Charla, you're a big advocate of having litigators make a list of potential clients that we want to work with. So, tell us about that process. Sort of like, you know, why is that? And can you walk us through how we can develop uh, that list of potential clients?
1: I think that's important because all of us, whether we're litigators or or whatever we are, have choices about who we want to associate with and what kinds of work we would like to do. That won't necessarily guarantee that you end up with that work, but if we are going to make an aspirational list of what we would like to do with our life, we should also have an aspirational list of clients. I suggest that people sit down and think about clients they've done work for that they liked, clients that they've done work for that they would prefer not to do work for again. Make a list of the ones that in your ideal world would be your go-to client and you would be their go-to litigator. And then try to find ways to bring value to the contacts at those places and find ways to to get introduced to them. As a concrete example, when I was a very young lawyer, I had done work for a large pharmaceutical company and I just liked working for them. The in-house people were terrific, the work was challenging, it was interesting, it was exactly the sort of thing I envisioned myself doing when I was in law school, the sort of thing that you you think about when you think you're going to be a lawyer, but they had a lot of litigators and I was young, and I wasn't very experienced, but I put them on my list as my ultimate goal client, and I kept in touch with the people in-house. I tried to make myself available if they needed something, even if it wasn't a billable something. If they needed something in my jurisdiction, and they needed it in a hurry and couldn't get it, I became their outside resource and was eventually able to turn that into a client and lawyer relationship again as a more senior lawyer but that would have been harder to do if my business development efforts hadn't been concentrated there are types of work that as a litigator I'm simply not interested in I'm never going to do tax litigation even if I got the opportunity I don't have the background I don't have the skills i should not be spending time trying to meet and develop clients within a company that that's their need for litigation and i suggest suggest that that's true for every lawyer there are types of work and types of clients that fit us types of work and types of clients that do not so i suggest to people that they identify six to 10 companies or clients that they'd like to do work for and concentrate your efforts there. Any more than that, you spread yourself too thin and you're not providing value to them and you're not doing a service to yourself. But one needs to be self-conscious in terms of what you bring to the table and be honest in evaluating which of the situations you would be a good fit for, then make yourself a fit for those companies that need that kind of service. Does that answer your question? It,
0: it does. And let me turn to Angela and sort of ask, you know, what do we do now do with that list of potential clients? Because, and, and no offense to expert witnesses, but, you know, as litigators, we get emails all the time, cold emails all the time from expert witnesses who, you know, say, hey, you know, we're I'm an expert witness. If you, you know, if you ever need um, expert an expert for your uh, trial, let me know. And my response, not that I respond to any of them usually, but my response in my mind is always, well, I don't know you. I don't know how you can help me. You don't really know me. So why would I respond to this email? So how do we go about contacting these folks that we want to work with without becoming a nuisance? And how do we get over sort of our fear of making that initial contact anyway?
2: Dave, I love the fact that you said it. Most lawyers don't want to be a nuisance, and I appreciate that you said that. You get experts that call you this. It's like nails on a chalkboard to me when I coach experts, and they just say, "Hey, Dave, I'm a construction litigation expert. Hire me." And you have no idea who they are. It's just the wrong way to go about things. But nobody does wants to do this, and professionals, all professionals, feel that way. We don't want to be a nuisance, but we're not really trained to do this kind of thing. So when I tell people that I coach, my mantra has always been throughout my career, whether it's an expert or business generator or whatever, that business development is like dating. You need to contact your clients and your network when you have something, like Charla said, of value for them. It is all about the client. It's not about you. So For example, if I was that expert witness contacting you, Dave, typically what I would do is I would do some research and it's a particular type of environmental or construction litigation you're working on, and it might involve a structural crane collapse or something. I might come to you because I'm referred to you by somebody at your law firm that I've worked with before, whatever. So it's a warm call, not a cold call. And I would put it in terms of what value I can do to help you and your client is what I would do. But if you're currently working for your client, I don't care what it is, you've got this list um, if, you, if you're already working on the matter, give them a status report. At the end of the matter, call them up and ask them for feedback. Don't leave it to your business development people to do that. You should be doing that. It's a great way to build the relationship. If you're giving a webinar or you're publishing a thought leadership or doing a podcast like this, let them know and send it along. If you're going to go to a conference, reach out and see if they're attending. And if they aren't, offer them to send them a debrief of the topics discussed but if you know them well enough, and I really emphasize you've got to know them well enough or at least know them and they know who you are, you could talk to them about things outside of the legal process. You know, I have a really great relationship with clients and we talk about Big Ten football because my son went to Wisconsin or they went to Wisconsin or they're coming to San Francisco. I'll give them a recommendation for a restaurant to go to or if I've been somewhere, I'll give them a travel tip if they've known I've been someplace. You really have to do something that is providing value to them. But the way I also see in the last two years that I think people have gotten a little bit better at, but I think sometimes with all this technology we have, we get away from it. You just need to pick up the phone and call to see how they are. COVID really brought this home. People really just want to feel appreciated and connected. There's really no right or wrong consistency in contacting clients. But if it doesn't feel good to you, if you feel like you're being a nuisance, then don't do it because you're not providing them any value. But you have to be present in their lives. Much like when you're dating somebody, you've got to be present in their life.
0: And, and Charlotte, let me bring you back into the conversation because I think Angela brought up a really good point, which is, especially if you're working with somebody uh, or you want to work with a, a, a company that they may not be familiar with you and you may not be familiar with them necessarily is that you have to do some research to figure out, you know, what kind of work do they do? Um, And in order to provide value to them, um, you need to find out more about the client. So tell us about a little bit about sort of your research process and how you might use a, a team within your firm, maybe a secretary or someone else to help you do that research.
1: There are a tremendous number of resources out there these days that uh, are easily available. You can do an internet search, you can read the 10Q, you can look at the most recent annual report for a company, you can Google their litigation to find out what they've been doing, what what are the current top topics for them. And that's true even for small clients. So much of what I'm talking about relates to bigger companies, of course, but the same is true even for smaller mom and pop shops you do the same kind of research on the client that you would do on a, a case or an item, figure out who the people are that work in the legal department. Chances are you may know some of them or you know someone who knows some of them. And so you can start that process by having someone on your staff do some of the sort of fundamental research for you. But whoever it does that early work, you're still going to have to go in and internalize that information to understand who you need to talk to, what their role is, and what's important to them. Once you do that, then you need to find a way to make those contacts. Get an introduction. If you know someone who went to college with the CEO, find a way to get an introduction that isn't awkward for everyone. Like Angela said, sometimes it's as simple as being able to talk about football, something I can't do, by the way. But making those human connections with people gets you that foot in the door so you can have the discussion. I used to use a product, they've renamed it, but it was Westlaw something or another market watch or something like that and you could just put in the name of the company and it gave you an in-depth report of everything about them all their litigation all their in-house people what their public profile was if they were listed on uh, the nasdaq or the dow it gave all of that type of information so you could do a very deep dive on the company, its profile, its priorities, how everything fit together and what its litigation profile was. And that goes back to that making that list of clients you would like to have. That gives you the kind of information to use to make that initial analysis, which you can then use to make the sort of connections you need to be considered for the work that they may have available.
0: Charlie, you also raise kind of the, the size of the company, and I want to raise sort of a separate issue, which is the size of your law firm. And I know that you've been uh, with uh, smaller firms and larger firms. So I guess my question is, when you're making your list of potential clients you want to work with, how do you know, for example, that you know this, a large corporation may want or have the ability uh, to work with a smaller firm? smaller law firm and the opposite you know if you're if you're a you know with a larger firm who maybe has a a a larger or um, a higher billable rate for example uh, and you want to work with a smaller company how do you know that that company may want to work with you so does size I guess matter in this conversation either with the company that you want to work with or with your law firm
1: I think size is probably always something of a consideration, but at the end of the day, in-house lawyers hire lawyers. It has been my experience that the companies I worked with, big and small, hired me because they wanted me and my expertise. They didn't really care whether I was still at the boutique firm, whether I was at the 800 lawyer law firm, or if I was at something in between. There is always a practical business reality to rate and rate structure that goes into the research on the kind of cases and needs that a company has depending on the company, they may actually have some information about what they're looking for for outside counsel. As a female, I always looked for companies that had some sort of a diversity program. I didn't find that that necessarily meant I was going to get any of the work, but it might give me access to a contact person that was over that program or that process, which could then be used to get an introduction to the person who is actually going to Make a decision. So all of that goes into the mix. But the reality is if you're a $1,000 an hour lawyer and you are looking to do work for a mom and pop shop that only clears revenue of about a half million a year. That's probably not your target client, and you're unlikely to be the person they hire. That's just a business reality, and you need to be aware of that as you're evaluating and deciding how to spend your precious time on business development and marketing.
0: Got it. Let's ask sort of. So we're at the end of this sort of journey where we've have lists of clients, we've uh, done the, the done the research, we've now had had conversations let's talk about asking for the work and this sort of seems to be the most obvious thing to do since we've put in so much work in our business development efforts but i think it's a step that often gets missed uh, because we assume that the potential client knows that we want the work so charlotte can you just talk a little bit about you know ask actually asking for the work from these potential clients
1: absolutely and i do think that it is a step that gets missed The in house staff are busy, and some of them can intuit that you're doing all this work because you would like for them to hire you. Sometimes they just think you like them because you're their friend, and that's okay too. There may be those situations, but you have to be able to take that next step and say, gee, Bob, the next time you have a, an asbestos case, as an example, because that's kind of work I did a lot of. Please keep me in mind. I'd love to do some work for you. It looks like you have some very interesting cases and uh, opportunities for someone like me. People do not take hints. They don't have the time. If you are a litigator and you are able to make demanding questions of opponents and respond to courts. You shouldn't be shy about saying to a client or a potential client, I've really enjoyed working with you on this matter. Please keep me in mind if you have another one. That doesn't make anyone uncomfortable, but if you skip that step, they may assume that you've got all the work you need. You're too busy to do their work. You're not interested in doing their work. There are any number of things that may be, the consideration on the other side of that conversation. You just need to be upfront about it and say, golly gee, I'd love that opportunity to work for you again. Had great time representing you in XYZ County. I hope we get a chance to do that again. Please keep me in mind. That's an appropriate thing to do, and no one should feel uncomfortable with doing it on the other hand, if you don't do it, they may just assume you really don't want the work. So it's very, very important to make the ask.
0: And Angela, did you have any other tips on uh, making the ask for the work?
1: No, I totally agree with regard to it.
2: I mean, if you think lawyers are bad, engineers are probably worse with regard to that. But you're right. I mean, it is it is all about we're all in the room together and whether I'm an expert witness talking to a lawyer or a lawyer talking to another lawyer, at the end of the day, it's about getting the work done. And so you have to be able to uh, pull yourself up of the bootstraps. Nobody's going to slap you around for the fact you said, I really enjoyed working with you. I'd like to do it again. Or if you have this opportunity in the future, I'd love to be considered. Because I always teach, if you don't ask, you don't get. You've got to ask.
0: One thing that I'd like to ask both of you, since we both we have two ladies on on the episode today that are extremely knowledgeable, well experienced, very well credentialed, I wonder for the young female lawyer who might be listening to this podcast episode, what sort of tips might you have for someone just starting out um, as a as a litigator um, to develop her own client base? Because I know that there. There must be specific gender-related issues in this process. So I wonder, uh, Charlotte, could you start? um, What is your, I guess, best tip for uh, someone who's just starting out to build their litigation practice?
1: I would tell them to approach it just like they've approached everything else they went to law school and did well. They got a great job and they're doing well. They'll do well doing business development. I must say that while I have faced some challenges as a female in the legal profession, because everyone faces some challenge, I have not found it to be a detriment in business development to be a female. But you just need to approach it in the same professional way that you approach everything else. It is a Business issue, approach it like a business issue, and don't feel uncomfortable with asking for the work. There really isn't any difference, in my view, in asking for that work as a woman as opposed to a man. Unless you are getting pushback from someone, there is less of that than there used to be. It's still there. But make that time and and do this, the work that goes into doing it. If you lose an assignment because you're female, that might have been a client that you didn't want to work for anyway, but... It is a, an ongoing process, and like I said, I did not necessarily find it to be a detriment. People will sometimes talk to you if you're a woman when they won't talk to you as a man because they may feel more comfortable. They're usually wrong about that at the end of the day, but you can use that to your advantage. I, I don't think that one should shy from doing business development because there is any concern about whether you are male or
0: female. Angela, any additional thoughts on that?
2: Well, I think, I think a couple things to add to that. I mean, I, I was kind of the unique one in the room because there were very few women PhDs when I started in engineering, when I started selling to lawyers. So that was, you know, to, at that time was a benefit. There's a lot more now. And what I counsel uh, women engineers or women lawyers with regard to it is, first of all, find somebody like you and get some advice. There's plenty of senior lawyers like Sharla, like other women that I know, Colleen Davies, who was at Reed Smith, that are open their doors to younger women lawyers for offer advice. There's plenty of, through LinkedIn, there's groups through the American Bar Association. There's a great women advocate network. From my suggestion is to talk to people, but you know, build the relationships like, like much like you build your personal relationships. You do good work, You've got this far, you're working for a great company, show your skills, and but also show your humanity and your, and your ability to connect with people. And that, at the end of the day, will help you at least get, build your network and make you a little bit more comfortable in doing the business development.
1: Yeah. And if I could add one more thing. For those young women who really have no idea where to start uh, pick up a copy of my book and work through the worksheets. I think that will help because it gives a framework and a structure for getting started. And sometimes it's just the need to get started and to have some sort of a a process to work through. I agree with Angela. There are a lot of senior women out there who are more than willing to help a young lawyer. The profession has gotten better. We'd all love to see it get better still. So there is a very supportive network. The ABA has great resources. The NAL committee, which is a subcommittee of the ABA, National Association, of Women Lawyers is an excellent reference and a great business support group. So for women lawyers, whether they are litigators or otherwise, who are looking to start the process of developing their own book of business and developing clients, those are all good starting points, and they're supportive in the long term as well.
0: Well, we are nearing uh, the end of our time together. I wanted to hear your final thoughts. Both of you mentioned uh, bar association work. Um, So we'd love to get any final thoughts, especially your top tip for using bar association activities to get clients. But before we hear that tip, let's hear a message from our sponsors. And welcome back, everyone. And now let's get our guest's top tip for using bar association activities to gain clients. So we'll start with Angela.
2: So I... Love working with the bars associations with regard to this, and I think it's a great opportunity for for younger lawyers to build their business development. I think it's leadership experience, practice and be able to hone your networking skills and get referrals from other attorneys and jurisdictions. I also think it's an excellent way to ask your client to co-present and give them an opportunity to build their brand as well as your own.
0: Excellent. And Charla.
1: Some of my greatest referrals have come from people that I got to know through Bar Association activities. To the extent that you have the opportunity to join a Bar Association specialty group that Suits you in terms of the kind of work that you do, the location, and so on. It is an excellent way to get access to people who can mentor you, provide information. But again, some of the best work I have ever had the opportunity to do came through referrals from other lawyers, most of whom I met through Bar Association activities. So it really is a terrific way to both build your network and to build your client base.
0: Well, terrific, Charlotte Frost, Dr. Angela Meyer. Thank you all so much uh, for being on the show today. Really appreciate your help.
1: Thank you. Thank you for the opportunity.
0: And now it's time for our quick tip from the ABA Litigation Section. I'm pleased to welcome back Latasha Ellis on the show. Latasha is a litigator in the Washington D.C. office of Hunt and Andrews Kurth, focusing on insurance coverage cases. Welcome back to the show, Latasha. Hi, Dave. Thanks for having me back. Oh, of course. And I understand you're going to talk about discovery dispute issues today. So what's your quick tip?
3: Yeah, I wanted to share a few tips or practice points related to confidentiality designation disputes. So one of the things that uh, we're seeing increasingly on my team is we are seeing more courts apply enhanced scrutiny on confidentiality designations. And, you know, a party merely calling a document confidential, is no longer making it so in the court's eyes. So courts are requiring parties that are making confidentiality designations provide specific facts uh, to support those designations. And I think what's happening is that, you know, strategic opposing counsel is recognizing this such that it is leading to, in some cases, some pretty contentious disputes and, of course, ending up on the losing end of any of these disputes could create a significant risk, in my opinion, of unnecessarily exposing personal or corporate information that probably shouldn't be publicly available. So I'd like to share just a few tips uh, with regard to confidentiality designations. The first tip is, where possible, Litigants should seek to limit the nature and the scope of their claims at issue in the case. So this starts at the pleading stage when drafting your complaint, making sure that it's tight. But also maintaining confidentiality starts by limiting the scope of discovery. So, you know, having a good, tight complaint, those issues in turn will govern the scope of permissible discovery in the case and i think for defendants you know even a partial success on if you're in federal court uh, a rule 12b6 motion to dismiss could certainly limit the breadth of permissible discovery to be conducted so even when drafting or submitting discovery reports parties can aggressively use the proportionality rules which will again narrow the scope of permissible discovery and again limit what is produced in a particular case. So, the first tip being to, of course, where, where possible, seek to limit the scope of the claims at issue. My second tip is really setting yourself up for success in the protective order. Parties should negotiate terms for inclusion in the protective order that, you know, first define what constitutes protected trade secret and confidential commercial information. And I do think that it's really important to carefully define, you know, what is considered confidential so that it is broader than just trade secrets. So, you know, maybe for instance, if counsel is involved in litigation, involving an industry that is regulated by a government authority then including references to confidentiality as it is used in those government regulations is really what parties should do. And second, just really governing the circumstances by which the confidentiality challenges can be made. So, you know, the order should indicate who can raise a challenge. When such challenges can be made, the procedure to be followed to make that challenge you know, are you going to require a meet and confer and whether the party seeking disclosure should indicate their intended use for the information. And I think even if those terms in the protective order differ from the court rules or the court requirements, courts are generally willing to enforce any sort of agreed upon terms for parties because, of course, they may require some sort of particular um, good cause if you attempt to modify those terms in the protective order after the fact. So the second tip is setting yourself up for success in the protective order. And my third and final tip is when designating documents confidential, actually following the procedures that you put forward in your protective order. I really can't tell you how many cases I've had where opposing counsel designates documents confidential and does not even follow the guidelines that we've took the time to put into the protective order. So, you know, making sure that the documents satisfy the criteria that has been set forth in the protective order for confidentiality, and whether that's containing proprietary information or trade secrets or highly confidential information that has the potential to cause significant competitive harm or to give some sort of competitive advantage to others. Just following those criteria. And so, in some instances, this may mean that just your routine business communications will not qualify if you didn't take the time, as I mentioned in the second tip, of making sure that that term confidential is broad enough to encompass those sorts of communications. So, also in this vein, you know, providing specific factual basis associated with the risk of disclosing the documents. So, moving beyond just general statements of competitive harm or disadvantage. So, you know, going that next step and saying there could be identity theft or my client's identity could be stolen or XYZ could exploit my client's information, this, these competitors, just going that next step. So the three tips are, again, first, where possible, litigants should seek to limit the nature and scope of the claims at issue. Second, really setting yourself up for success with the protective order. And third, when designating documents confidential, making sure that you follow the procedures that you set forward in those in the protective order. So, you know, in the event that the dispute, still rises to the level where judicial intervention may be necessary, which is possible. I think the party should also be willing to take reasonable positions (laughs) on the confidentiality status of their documents. So, you know, knowing where to give and where to stand ground will probably help just further narrow the issues, but also will probably uh, show some reasonableness to, to the court in those instances.
0: Well, that's great, Latasha. Thanks so much uh, for your tips. And I think there's no dispute that we'd love to designate you to be back on the show. So I hope you'll join us again next time. Of course. Well, that's all we have for our show today. And I want to thank Michelle Olberts, who's on staff at the litigation section for her help, as well as our fabulous producer, Rich Rivera. Thanks, Rich, for all of your hard work. Thanks also goes out to the co-chairs of the litigation section's audio content committee, Josh Jones and Tyler Truek. Thank you to Lawrence Coletti and the audio professionals from Legal Talk Network. And last but not least, thank you so much for listening. I'll see you next time.